Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 2. John 2, verses 13 through 22. John 2. And God's word says this. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Please be seated. pray. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit's help. We thank you that we're not here just trying to get your attention, but we have your attention. And you have received our praises. You've heard our songs and you've heard our admissions of, of sinfulness and yet gratitude that you've saved us. Now we look at your word, and this can only properly be done with your Holy Spirit's help. So we pray that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Yes, right right from the start, let me me possibly help you with, with a mistake that I make when I read about this particular cleansing of the temple. Um, John records this right at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Right, he's, just, he's just started. We have this prologue about who Jesus is. We have his first miracle at the wedding. And right away, it's the Passover. He goes in and he clears the temple. And people say, well, wait a minute. Or maybe we don't say, wait a minute. We say, oh, I know all about that because I've read about that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke also record a clearing of the temple, but they are talking about what happened during what we call Holy Week, during Passion Week. And some people say, well, one more proof the Bible isn't true. See, they can't even get their story straight. John puts it at the start. These guys put it at the end. What's going on here? Who was right, John or, or, or those, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke? And the answer is, things can happen twice. 
Jesus did this at the start of his ministry. And as John is writing under the inspiration of Scripture, John places it here because it happened here. Those men placed it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit at the last week because it happened again then. And sometimes we conflate the two stories and we merge them together. Um, there's a constant, I think the practical thing is there's a constant need. And as we think about our own lives and our own hearts, there's a constant need for us to take inventory of the temple of our lives and what we're worshiping and who we're worshiping and how we're worshiping and why we're worshiping. So this is a standalone event in Scripture as the other event is. And Jesus cleared the temple twice that we know of. Maybe it happened more than that, but the Scriptures uh, choose to, to, to reveal these two. So this is, a, this is in John. This is at the very start of Jesus' ministry as he's coming in. Um, I was thinking a lot about worship and why we worship. There's a singer I used to listen to. It was a band. It was an Irish, they called them an Irish progressive band in the Christian music scene. They were called Iona. It's back in the 90s a great album called The Book of Kells. And it was just wonderful. It was thought-provoking. And some of the kids in the youth group got into it, too. And we listened. They had a lead singer who was a Northern Irish uh, woman named Joanne Hogg, H-O-G-G, Joanne Hogg. And she, at one point, released an album of hymns that I listened to. And during the COVID lockdown, I pulled that CD out, and I just listened to those hymns, uh, with those arrangements. And I thought, you know, all these people these days, they've all got web pages and sites, and I bet there's a way I could say thank you. I was just really appreciated songs like How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds and those types of things, just in a nice voice. So I, I emailed. I found her website, and I said, thank you. I'm just listening. I'm a pastor over here in Connecticut. I'm uh, listening to, to the hymns, and, and I just want you to know that those hymns you recorded back in 1999 are still uh, being used by God to, to encourage. And she wrote back and she said something about, I've just come through this incredible, dark, spiritual journey and my eyes have been opened. Um, and I didn't quite understand what she was saying. But, you know, you make the contact, you get on the website and all that. And, and I noticed she had a new song, a new album call, coming out uh, uh, this spring, and I like the name of, the, of the, the projected title of the album, Songs for Sinners. That just rang good in my ear. I wanted to hear Songs for Sinners and what she was saying. Well, she, she, it's a different name now, but the whole album is talking about how she got caught up in wrong worship of God, how she was deceived, and she thought there was more, and she was being told by her church that she went to, that there was more than just the basic scripture and the understanding and the simple worship of God that we read about. Uh, she, She released this, she said, March 2020 was the start of a global pandemic and subsequent lockdowns. My social bubble of immediate family quickly expanded in those early weeks to include several additional young people. And in the months that followed, there were many big questions asked and long conversations and debates. I realized very quickly that I was not prepared or equipped 
to navigate these discussions and that I was struggling to articulate a biblical worldview and what I truly believed. This collection of songs chronicles some aspects of the journey and that process continues. She goes on to say there are eight verses in scripture that use the Greek word apologia. The most familiar is 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. I hope the songs will encourage and maybe challenge you wherever you are in your journey. The pilgrim path is typically a difficult one, but it's worth it. It is only the truth, she puts the truth in all caps, found in the word, and she puts the word in all caps, that really sets us free. That is the best news ever. And she, oh, musically it's great, but the, the, the music does not impinge on the words. And the first part of the album is talking about probably where we've been. You say, it's not enough just to be a Christian. I want more. I want more. I want this. I want that. Give me. Be still and, and, and just let God. One of her lines says, like, faith is a force to be used to make things happen on command. Oh, Lord, what have I done? And so she gets up at the end of the song, the end of the album. She's singing about the five solas. She's talking about the life of Christ. The very last track is just a reading with beautiful music of Isaiah 53. My favorite is a Scottish accent, but I'll take a Northern Ireland accent if I can't get a Scottish one. And it's beautiful to hear Isaiah 53, the words we hear with our communion. And and by uh, his wounds we are healed. And you think about it, and, and the point is just whatever you think you're striving for in your worship, whatever you're, you're, you're going after and, and trying to, to strain and get, maybe just slow down and get into God's word. Pray. Uh, she had a song called Meology. I used to wonder why I couldn't hear you talk to me. Thought I was supposed to hear your voice inside my head. I used to think there was something wrong with me or worse, that maybe I was spiritually dead. Spent so many hours by the river contemplating the water and the trees, but I got restless trying to be still. It was less about you and it was more about me. And she talks about people saying, lean in, press on, trust your feelings, pursue the mystical encounter. Uh, and she, she got to the point where she said, it wasn't theology, it was meology. And we're going to look at worship a little bit this morning. And we're going to say, what is going on when God calls you individually and us as a people to worship him? And the answer is not shoot for this level and this level. It's not a video game when you, with your spirituality. It's a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Just do. Finally, it's the narrow door. It's the confess your sin, repent, believe, and just live your life for God. We would all agree that everyone's a theologian, that each person has God thoughts and a system where they place God. But theology, theos logos, the word about God, might not be the preeminent thing for us. We even fit our God thoughts, at least I do, and maybe you do, into me, me, me. How does this apply to me? And wait a minute, it's not about us. It's about 
the God who saved us. So we read about and thought about Jesus' first miracle last week. Today, we see Jesus' righteous anger on display. Righteous anger on display. And it's directed toward some egregious, egregious practitioners of neology. Neology is not something new. It's something we've had to fight with through the centuries as people. So two sections in this text, it just naturally divides that way. Jesus' action and the response to Jesus' action. First, look at Jesus' action. And the first point about Jesus' action, it was violent. You can't say gentle Jesus. Uh, He didn't go over and just gingerly (laughs) set the things aside and, and, and set the table down. It said he came in and he saw what was going on in this place that was supposed to be a house of worship. He made a whip and he violently, he actually did this. Chased them out with a whip. Turned the tables over. Grabbed their money, their coins that they were collecting uh, and profiting. Spilled them all over the floor and said, get out of here. This is not anything but a place of worship was violent. church I was at uh, in Delaware would have this um, passion play every year. And um, we can talk later about, you know, Second Commandment. Some people didn't like it and didn't like that Jay Fenton played Jesus and, and all of that. And I had no problem with that, but they, they pulled us in uh, on staff and they said, watch this play and see just biblically, make sure we're getting this accurate. Watch this uh, play and, and, and give some help as we present this to the public. And there was this guy I knew who was a nice guy. He was a nice guy. Jay was a nice guy. He was, he was a, a gentle type of a person. And for him to take the whip to people, and this is the, 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 the last cleansing of the temple, uh, but the, the description of this first one is, is like that. For him to take a whip to people I knew. And they were pretty good actors because they acted out the terror and the tipping of the tables. I think that portrayed to me that for the first time what was going on there. I hated to see my friend whip my friends and chase them out in, a, in such a violent, dramatic way. And they said, was it biblical? And I said, as I look at scripture, it was a biblical portrayal of this. Jesus never sinned. We're told to be angry and sin not. Jesus was angry in this case, and he sinned not. You can't attribute Jesus. I mean, me, if I was doing it, I'd find out one that I'd always had this grudge against. I'd make sure he at least felt the sting of the whip. Uh, Jesus could do this without sin, but it was without sin, and yet it was dramatic. And it doesn't fit sometimes our picture of Jesus. But what, is, what are we seeing? Jesus cared about his people not being allowed to worship and being inhibited by the middleman. Really happened. Get a biblical view of Jesus and read those Gospels. People say, well, this is Jesus being a revolutionary. This was radical. Jesus came to speak truth to power. He came to 
overthrow all these structures of our, our uh, society. And he came, and it's not necessarily Jesus being a revolutionary. You can't say, uh, like some of these liberation theologists did, and take an example like this and say, this condones violence. Was it Jesus as a revolutionary? Or was it God in the flesh saying, let my people worship me? It's not a call for us to follow Jesus into storming into places and, and overturning tables and, and fashioning whips. God can do that because God is God, and when God does it, it's right. On the other hand, he wasn't there to be a conservative. On the other hand, he was there. Uh, uh, people, as they interacted with Jesus, saw him as a force that changed things. It's as good of a time as any to say that the movement of Christianity is also not to be revolutionary in the way we think of it or conservative. Listen to this. Listen to this and think about where Christianity fits into the world, where you as a Christian fit into the world in your Christian life. Article called Christianity, neither revolutionary nor conservative. Writing at, and he gives a, another article, a man named Paul, somebody, gives a dismal prognosis for Western civilization. Melting since the Enlightenment, the West is today on an unsettled world with a notion that the West is declining, collapsing, dying, or even committing suicide is reaching a crescendo. Many propose to shore things up, but uh, this man, Kingsnorth, regards these efforts as superficial. Here's what he says. The chickens of modernity, which the West created and exported, have come home to roost, and we are all increasingly covered in their guano. Our post-human, post-natural, post-truth, post-Christian world has succumbed to the temptation of the serpent. In such a world, Kings North asks, what's to conserve? His sobering answer is nothing. We have to dig down to the foundations and above all to pray. This writer says, is this an extreme diagnosis? I think not. It's hard to identify a single sector of Western society where the Christian convictions and instincts that he rightly identifies as the core of the West survive. Even much of the church has adjusted to cultural currents, and that's true. We elders talk about this all the time. How do we, how do we have be a church that doesn't give in to, to the world's stuff? You look at churches and people come here and they're interested because they just want the Bible and not all this stuff that's out there that, that's worldly, that, that's taking over their church instead of the gospel. Yet we aren't floating in an ambiguous liminal space either. Our institutions and cultural norms are shaped by a deliberately non-Christian, often an anti-Christian vision of reality. In 1948, T.S. Eliot had sound reasons to say the West was still Christian on the grounds that, quote, a society has not ceased to be Christian until it has become positively something else. And this writer says, we've long since passed that point. 
we have become something else, something monstrous. I would say, is America a Christian nation? No. You would agree. No. Our historical moment exposes the limits of conservatism. How can conservatism guide us when there's nothing left to conserve? Ours isn't the first such moment. Western history is pocked with revolutions, epochs when ancient regimes were demolished, when settled beliefs were turned upside down, when things fell apart and all that was solid melted into thin air. And we know something's out there, something's happening. We know it. The Roman Empire girdled the Mediterranean, but it's gone. Western Christendom was miraculous achievement, but it died. Byzantium was all gilded splendor, but now lies in a gilded grave. Protestant Europe gave way to the Enlightenment. Each time the world went on differently. And we don't get to coast in our lives. Those that have lived as long as we've lived, uh, it's changing. This is why King's North is right to point us beyond conservatism to Scripture. Scripture. Biblical faith can meet cultural disillusion in a way no merely conservative agenda can. He goes to the Old Testament to God's people Israel. He says, Israel survived Egyptian slavery, the chaos of the judges, the end of the Davidic monarchy, Babylonian exile, and Antiochus Epiphanes, who's the one that defiled the temple in between the Testaments. The church thrived during the collapse of Rome, converting the invading barbarians and preserving what fragments of antiquity she could pick up from the rubble. Europe remained Christian after its Reformation breakup, and the modern missions movement took off during the heyday of enlightenment and secularization. When worlds fall to ruins, the church is the catalyst of rebirth. When things are collapsing, and we don't know, are we in a recession, are we not in a recession, what's going to happen, what's, what's, what's left is God's church and God at the result, and we get to be Christians in easy times and in hard times. The serpent's forces do their best, but the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. Here on Pentecost Sunday, he says this, and think to what you've heard and know about the book of Acts and the Holy Spirit's work, and don't despair. Pentecost is the secret of the church's resilience. The Holy Spirit is the energy who turns the wilderness to a fertile field and the fertile field to a forest. But resilience isn't quite right because the spirit of Pentecost initiates upheavals. Pentecost was itself a titanic disruption of the way things were. And Acts records a series of aftershocks from the detonation of Pentecost. The spirit who gives dreams and visions continuously propels the church across new horizons, breaking through old barriers and stirring dry bones. Listen to what you know from Acts. Listen to the Holy Spirit's working in people and say that's the same God, the same Holy Spirit for the same times as us, and we get to be Christians, and we get to live in, 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 in these exciting, scary times. Through Philip's preaching, the Spirit falls in Samaria, finally fulfilling the prophetic hope 
that Jerusalem and Samaria, Judah and Israel would be reunited under a Davidic king. The spirit drives Philip to the desert where he baptizes an Ethiopian eunuch before the spirit snatches him away to another place. When Peter preaches in the house of the Roman centurion Cornelius, the spirit falls on Gentiles too, causing not a little consternation among the conservative Jewish believers back in Jerusalem. The spirit sends Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary expedition to the Gentiles. And the spirit guides the council of Jerusalem to embrace Gentiles as brothers and fellow members of Christ's body. After Paul's plan to revisit the churches of Asia is frustrated, the Spirit sends him a vision of a man from Macedonia calling him to cross the Dardanelles to plow a fresh mission field. To today, throughout her history, the church has followed the spiritual trajectory set by Acts. She scrambles to keep place with her dreamers and wild visionaries, her Constantines and Charlemagnes and Alfreds, her Gregories and Patricks and Benedicts and Francises, her Thomases and Luthers, her Wesleys and Hudson Taylors. Guided by the spirit of Pentecost, Christianity is neither revolutionary nor conservative, but also neither anti-revolutionary nor anti-conservative. It's something other, supple enough, alive enough, spiritual enough to recover what can be recovered and to innovate when nothing can be recovered. By the Pentecostal spirit, the church is like our God, ever old and ever new. Concludes the article. We must grasp the gravity of our moment. The West isn't sick. It's dead. And we should heed Jesus' exhortation to let the dead bury their dead. Our calling in the wasteland isn't to conserve but to keep in step with the Spirit, hoping boldly and joyfully for resurrection. Ah, we can just pray. We can say we don't know what's coming. We can say, and we look at interest rates, we look at factors like this, we don't know what's going on, We don't know. Uh, We see riots in the streets. We see things topple. There was one thing, there was another thing. But uh, just talking to an 80-year-old couple I met in the store, grocery store. Helped them reach something down and read a label or do something with them. We got to talking. And they said, I am so glad I got to live in America when I lived and that it's closing because I don't know what's coming. And I said, the Lord knows what's coming. And the Lord has equipped you for such a moment as this. God calls you to be involved in in whatever thing he wants you to be involved in politically. Well, look at the Bible. Mordecai was a good public servant in the political life of, of Esther. Look at Daniel who served in two administrations. Not saying that, but our hope has got to be not in systems or things. It's got to be as Christians in the Holy Spirit and the Spirit's power, and we live that way. We've got to worship God, Spirit and in truth. We've got to be in the Word. And these people were preventing God's people from worshiping. 
What was the motivation that Jesus had? It wasn't uh, radical, revolutionary. It was the glory of God and people preventing people from worship. Uh, some, some writer talked about Jesus and his disciples and his family members walking from Cana down in the Passover to Jerusalem. Uh, that city would swell, they say, to about 2.5 million during the Passover. wasn't a big town or a big city, uh, but uh, some historians have said there was that many people that would come to worship in the Passover. Already it was like Christmas. A month ahead of time, people are getting ready for it. Roads were, re- were repaired. Things were done. Get ready, for, uh, get ready for the Passover. And they said, what's Jesus thinking as they're walking from Cana into Jerusalem? And more and more people are joining. The, the, the traffic's getting bigger. It's foot traffic and donkey traffic and, and cart traffic. But more and more people are coming in. And what is very God of very God? What is Jesus thinking as he's going in for this Passover, as he has done his first miracle and getting ready on this journey to the cross that he came to, 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 to take. It says maybe he was wondering more and more about the motivation, the actual heart of the people as they go to worship. Gets into the temple and there's all the noise and all the profiteering. I read this, they would have people trained to be inspectors of whether the lamb was perfect or not. And if the lamb was close enough to perfection, uh, then they would approve that lamb to be offered. Uh, But if the lamb wasn't, they'll sell you one at a pretty good price. And you see some corruption, you see some interest rates, you see some things. And the main thing is, this was happening in the court of the Gentiles. This was happening in a place where people were supposed to calm their hearts and worship. And you say, who's making money off the church? Where's the meology and the theology and what's going on? And, and Jesus is saying, you're preventing people from, from worshiping. It's all about the extra stuff. In the second cleansing of the temple that we read about, he said, My house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, and you've made it a a den of thieves. God cares about us simple people worshiping him simply. Got to be careful of the slickness and the, the... institutionalized, organized church. Why can't we just sing a song that praises God? Why does Mark have to go through and fill out what we sang and submit it so they get the percentage of the take on the what we sang? Big boon for people writing some of these Christian songs now uh, because now that it's on, services are on Zoom, uh, they make a little more if we, if we sing their copyrighted songs and, and publish it that way. I think it was the Wall Street Journal. Investors are buying money in back catalogs of Christian writers, and Christian songwriters are trying to write that song. Uh, they say that the average song that Christians sing in churches uh, lasts four or five years, but if they can buy a back catalog of a writer who does it 10 years and that money comes in through, uh, that'll, that'll be a good 15% investment on their money. And the guy writing the song can send his kid to college and take the lump sum just like 
Michael Jackson sold his catalog, and Tina Turner sold her catalog, and all that. And you go, I know there's got to be something, but that does not seem right. Worship being that type of a, of, of a middleman type of a thing. The laborer is worthy of his hire, but what's going on? And what's going on with all the noise? And what's going on with the acceleration of, of pumping people up in worship? This guy I like to listen to on a podcast. He talks some political things. He talks some sports things. Professing Christian. believe he really is a brother in Christ, and I like him uh, to, to listen to. Don't agree with him all the time. But he had a couple of pastors that he knew on. And he was talking with them. And they were talking in some documentary series on, on, um, on, on, on one of these corrupt money-making propositions. And he says these are like record labels that come and they're promoting the record labels and they'll come in and they'll do a couple little churchy type things, but it's not the church. And it's manipulation of people and it's taking people and it's a blocking worship of people. And Jesus said, I can't stand this. And we know we don't get worship right. We know we stumble sometimes. We know we don't. Uh, we've got to adjust the microphones. We've got to do this and, and we've got to do that. We've got we to do our best to help people worship and we don't want to be performance oriented. And we don't want to be all those things. But man, if you come to Christ the Shepherd Church, you should be able to worship God. We want to hold Christ up. Jesus said, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of, of, of what's going on with this worship. Those lambs that were sacrificed during Passover, that's a whole picture. That's all preparation for Jesus Christ as our perfect Passover lamb. He's going, man, people can't even see that to get this because of what's happening and growing up around church and church worship. And Jesus said, get out with a whip to enforce it. He said, let God's people pray. Let God's people really worship. Get out. It was a response to Jesus' action. They would soon know the truth about those scriptures, about those Passover lambs. And the response was this. First of all, the disciples had a response. Remember, the disciples had just recently been called by him. They'd just seen the first miracle. And they were just now starting. It's, we ended the last section, John did, by saying, and his, uh, and his disciples believed in him. That's in verse 11. And there they are watching. And they've believed in him. And they see his action. Their response was this. They thought about Jesus in relation to Scripture. And they remembered where it said, zeal for your house has consumed me. They'd been called by him. And they looked at the scriptures and they were already starting to apply Jesus as the Messiah with the scriptures. And that's what happens when we become Christians. We don't know everything about everything. We don't know all about the Bible. We don't know. We're learning. We're hearing. We're putting things together. But we can't know all about the Bible if we don't read our Bible. 
over at that chapel service, that great chapel service uh, with, uh, with a great bunch of kids. And they were all singing. The, the little preschoolers were here and the first graders and the second graders and third graders. The, they, were, they were like pretty, that was like my favorite group, right? Because Annie's in that group. But uh, the fifth and sixth graders, and I said to those fifth and sixth graders, you started out here in kindergarten hearing these simple songs and you're memorizing Bible verses and, and then you get into second grade and third grade. But by the time you're in fifth and sixth grade, you guys can put this together. You can start to think biblically and Christianly about how you're supposed to live. Uh, the, the, the scriptures are, are there for us uh, to, to hide in our hearts, to know how to live, to worship the Lord. We can't let people block that. And these disciples were starting to grow and they saw Jesus clearing the temple in a different way than the religious leaders said did. The religious leaders, their response was this. What sign do you show us for doing these things? What sign do you show us? Uh, it was pointed out, why didn't they say, where's your authority for doing this? And maybe asking for some kind of a sign. But they were, they were living in this earth. They wanted something visible. They wanted something, uh, uh, some sign, some, some expression of, of, of power or something. What sign can you give us to explain your actions? Who died and put you in charge? Give us a sign. Not what scriptural warrant do you have? And Jesus answered them. He didn't do some sign like poof, make something disappear or something. Uh, he just said this. He said, here's your sign. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Talking about his own death and resurrection, says the scripture. He was speaking about the temple of his body and when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he'd said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Two major sections talking about the disciples believing him as they looked at him. Listen. You should come to worship God regularly all the time, whenever you can. But you should expect that you'll be able to be pointed to God, the God of the scriptures. And as you do this, as you worship the Lord publicly, as you worship the Lord privately, you're going to grow. You can't help it. Somebody has a baby, you go see their family 10 years later, hey, how's little Johnny doing? Well, look, we've got him in the stroller right here. And you go, that was 10 years ago. Why is he still in the stroller? Why is he still? No, when you are born, you're born and you grow. When you are spiritually born, you grow. And these disciples were growing and they were seeing and they were putting it together. But the means of growth, their food was looking at the scriptures and, and, and worshiping God, God of the Bible. Spiritual growth is for you but you have to walk with Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Is it meology or theology? Is it how does this apply to me? How can I use this to get ahead? 
How can I use this to make myself feel good? How can I virtue signal to myself? Or is it, who is the God of the Bible? And how can I relate to him? Jesus is Lord and Savior, perfect substitute, atonement, propitiation, God the Son. Or is it religion is interpreted by people who sell Jesus short? Or religion is interpreted by people who oversell your ability to be spiritual in some way? A lot of religion, a lot of spirituality out there. There's a God of the Bible. It's a religion from a perspective of what's in it for me. Or is it religion based on Jesus as the Bible told us he is? Which will it be for you? I've been reading this book, uh, just like 10 pages a day, just to, to dabble in some history. Simon Winchester, the men who united the states. He talks about this hoax I'd never heard of, where when geology was starting to take off and they were trying to map the country geologically to who could grow where, and they were, who, could, who could farm where, who could mine where, what mines. And so people with a hoax spent $25,000, which was a lot in their day, and they bought real diamonds and rubies and emeralds, and they took it to this place, remote place out in the Mountain West, and they threw it in the hills, and they kind of half buried it. And then they told people, hey, we found these diamonds here, and people were interested in the diamonds and rubies. And they blindfolded people seven hours away, made them ride by train, and, and, and uh, took them out there. Uh, I don't know if they spun them around three times, but they, they had the blindfold on. They took them out there to disorient them, and they had them look. And those people grabbed some of those gems that were there. And they went back and said, there is a place in the United States where all of these gems are right there in the ground. They're easily accessible. And they took that and they sold uh, investments into this land. And people were buying into this mining company because they knew where it was. And it was all a hoax. And people lost their shirts over it. They finally got discovered. Be careful as you watch and listen. We can take the real thing and we can make it false and we can, we can make a lie. What is, what is Christianity? What am I telling you? What am I asking you to do? What am I asking us as a church? Not do these great big superhuman things, but just do what the ordinary rank and file Christians did. Live for God, live quietly, work with your hands. Read your Bibles, pray, go to church, every ordinary means of grace, and don't have to be superhuman, and and go for this, and your Christianity isn't as good if you don't do this, and you've got to have this. Be careful of the hucksters in between that will tell you that. Jesus is ready with his whip to drive them out. Simple faith. Practically speaking, you're a Christian. You've trusted in God. You've repented. You've seen what God says about sin. You've seen what God says about uh, forgiveness and salvation, how it can be through Jesus Christ and no one else. You've got a world that is hostile to that, that doesn't care about that, that's against uh, what you see in Scripture. You just live your life. You pray. Spiritual intake, biblical intake. Read your Bible. Singer that I talked at the start, Joanne, 
She was done with the Bible. She wanted to know the tricks on how to heal people, how to do this, how to do that. And she said, I had to get back to the Bible. Her song says, when the churches closed, God's word was open to me. And I started reading. And it's not that complicated. Jesus called you. He saved you. Read his word. Put it together. Live for God. Trust the Holy Spirit. Be in step with the Spirit. Pray and do, and we'll see what God does. Jesus went in, and he said, these people have a need to worship. That worship is being blocked and stopped, and it's become a a place of noise and a crowded house and and all this stuff that, that, that the temple's supposed to be. And it's all supposed to be pointing ultimately to me as the Messiah. And we're going to stop that. Significant that he did at the very start of his ministry. Practically speaking, we're going to go to the table. I would just implore you Some of you, probably most, not all of you, are doing this already. Read God's Word. Read the Bible. Find space. Listen to it. Some of you have told me that you listen to it, and that's a better way for you to absorb God's Word. Listen to it regularly. Even if if what you do, and I know you can do this, uh, I know this is possible, even to get through your Bible... Just take 15 minutes. Find a recording. Uh, this year, what I, I found a, an old King James recording. Not, not Alexander Scorby, although that's good too, but, but just 15 minutes. Go down and I'm the first one up. Make coffee. Make Paula's breakfast. Look at the stuff. 15 minutes a day of just listening to the scriptures. Uh, Boy, it's not a fun part right now. It's judges, and it's, the, it's, it's a terrible part. I can't wait to get to Ruth. But if you listen to just 15 minutes a day to start your day and pray and say, God, just bring your word into me. Have conversations that are spiritual. When you get a chance to, to listen to the word, do what you can. But you need God, and you need your Bibles, and your Holy Spirit will work with you as you Read his word, and as you pray, and they don't have to be long, involved, necessarily complicated prayers, but your calling as a Christian, if there was ever a time for you to need a relationship with God, it's right now. Read your Bibles. Come to church. See what God has to say to you. We've got a God who said it's that important. And he made a real whip and he really kicked tables over. He really dumped those things out and said, my people need to worship. That's how what God thinks about you worshiping. So do that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this incident, this 
demonstration that worshiping you is so high on your priority list. We thank you for Jesus who was the perfect lamb and the perfect sacrifice. We thank you that he was uh, destroyed, that he was killed, and that in three days he rose again in the power. We thank you for the hope we have. Lord, take away our hope in these um, institutions, these secular things. Help us to live as Christians. Help us to be loving to our neighbors. Help us to be right with you. In Jesus' name, amen.